Good evening, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast, where we are floating off into space on the back of a giant turtle while our neighborhood slowly disappears and our school building sinks slowly into the mysterious ocean. My name is Austin here, I am the host, and with me I am joined by Sully. Hello, hello. And Tobias. Hey. And Bill. Hey, everybody. And today on this episode, we're going to be talking about 1984's Urusei Yatsura 2, Beautiful Dreamer. Woohoo! This is going to be our first time talking about a Rubiko Takahashi work, I think. Right? Right. I think so. Right. Excellent. So it's very exciting times. Uh, finally, we've gotten around to something uh, written by her, and she, uh, after many years, finally won, uh, what was it, the Eisner Award? Yes. Last she year? won yes. the Eisner Award. And she was nominated into their Hall of Fame. She's been nominated, Excellent. I think, at least one or two times before and had never won. And so I'm very glad that she has finally been vindicated and recognized by the comics community after years of not noticing the most wealthy woman and prolific female manga <laughs> artist in Japan. They finally yeah. noticed her. <laughs> no joke. Not that she needs the praise of us, you know, filthy Westerners or whatever, but I'm sure she appreciates <laughs> it. Um, but anyway, before we get into our movie review today, uh, just do a real quick roundtable discussion of what everybody's been up to. Uh, so, Tobias, how have you been occupying your free time lately? Uh, well, just kind of catching up on, on various random things, uh, not doing actual podcast stuff, of course. Uh, I finally... Uh, beat the Super uh, Superman. Uh, finally, beat the Spider-Man PS4 game after we talked about it oh so many months ago during the uh, uh, what was it the Cycle Pass episode. Oh yeah, yeah. So I actually went through and beat that here. Uh, woefully, been not catching up on any winter anime at all. I watched a single episode of Promise Neverland and have been reading the manga here to sort of try to keep up ahead of the anime with that and I'm really enjoying that uh, it's got some issues here and there but uh, really surprised not really knowing what to expect through that series so really enjoying that and uh, of course I've been still catch keeping up with this Sailor Moon group group watch on Twitter uh, just watched episode 27 uh, earlier right for the podcast and I'm actually really enjoying going back and revisiting Sailor Moon after what like two decades of watching it way back on Toonami back in the day. Did you did you get through all of it way back in the day? Is this going to be your first time actually completing Sailor Moon? Uh, I'm hoping to complete it, yeah. I think uh, when I watched it on Toonami, I think I got up to about where uh, like Uranus and Neptune show up. Mm-hmm. I think. I barely remember seeing them on TV. Uh, so I watched a fair chunk of it, but certainly didn't finish it back then. That's mm-hmm. the third season, and then after that was the fourth, and the fifth never aired on American television, so uh, that was like right smack in the halfway point. Well, oh, l- wow. l- l- luckily all of it is on YouTube and it visits streaming channels, so it's really easy to keep up with that. Uh, I'm watching it oh. subbed, which is very much a change you know, from the original, uh, you know, my, my original experience, but they have both uh, that and a dub version available. Uh, no matter how you want to revisit it, uh, Hulu's got your back. I uh, never really got into Sailor Moon back in the day, but uh, I've uh, recently, whenever uh, it came out, I checked out a few episodes of the new Viz dub, and I'm really impressed by it. 
I think it's really good. Yeah, it's a it's a much better dub than we've ever gotten before, and it's nice to hear uh, the characters mm-hmm. uh, be the genders that they present as in the Japanese dub, and not have any sort of censorship or changes right. or anything like that. I mm-hmm. uh, I actually really like the Viz dub, even if I don't necessarily like the Viz releases, because they they kind of drop the ball mm-hmm. on the uh, the actual vid- video part of the releases. They were kind of lackluster and mm-hmm. below the quality we were expecting, so. Mm-hmm. Isn't that because of the, the Japanese master they received was kind yeah, of Yeah, Toru is weird about their masters. They even claim that, that some of them don't exist, even though we have, like, definitive proof that they do. Like, I know that's a case with Dragon Ball, so... <laughs> and in a way, I, it, it's watchable. It's not like it's so horrible, it's terrible, but it's like, you know, if I notice a single artifact on the screen, I'm like, it's ruined, it's over, it's done, Sailor Moon is forever burned in my memory, but I'm kind of surprised I'm not doing the rewatch and my excuses is the fact that like I've seen Sailor Moon so many times it's like why should I rewatch it I know what happens yeah and that's true I, 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 I've been meaning to rewatch it ever since then a few years back I started to watch it on Hulu but I only made it the first five or six episodes and I'm really bad at keeping up with as long term series in general so I'm, I'm really happy that I think after doing the Dirty Pair Group watch uh, at the end of 2018 and with us really happy to sort of watch something regular as if I would an actual televised show just like I did watch this back in the day it's not so horrible that it's terrible. Sully, 2019. I mean, that could just be my life in general. It's not so terrible as it to be horrible. <laughs> Yikes. Bill, what have you been up to? Uh, watching too much anime. I'm going to do this rapid Ooh, fire good. style. Okay. So I watched Night is Short, Walk on Girl. Uh, it was excellent. Uh, I will say I really enjoyed it, although it felt like a bunch of vignettes kind of uh, merged together, but that doesn't decrease the greatness of the movie. I really liked it. Uh, second, I watched all of Pop Team Epic. I joined yeah, the cult. Uh, Very it's good. Probably the first anime comedy in 15 years that I actually thought was really funny. If you want to hear more of my thoughts on it, go read my Twitter thread that I wrote about it a couple days ago. Uh, number three, I am watching thunderbolt fantasy i am on episode six of the first season uh do you like uh are you also a british nut and enjoy shows like the thunderbirds or anything by gary anderson you would enjoy this show because it's basically um very well produced uh puppets in this cool type of medieval japan almost a D&D group uh, storyline of there's this evil person with this mystical sword that's going to destroy the world. We have to go stop him. Uh, so, and just the effects is really good and it's a really oppressive, impressive achievement. Although if the puppets bug you, it might not be your, might not be your dig. Um, or maybe you should just get good. That's true. That is also true. <laughs> so after, you know, after going and seeing little bits and clips of the old Gary Anderson stuff, I've never really been intrigued enough to check puppet shows out. But after watching just an episode of that, to see the stuff they were able to do with puppets in Thunderbolt Fantasy is really just fantastic. 
Mm-hmm. Like, and also, it's got a high pedigree of the people who are behind it. Like, isn't uh, Ganarabuchi like the kind of the main planner of Thunderbolt Fantasy? Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, it's it's really well done. And finally, I found a show from this current season that I'm actually uh, fully enjoying. Called uh, I'm probably going to butcher the name wrong. The Magnificent Kobayashi, which is based. I think it, isn't it's uh, Kotobuki. Thank you, uh, mm-hmm. Katsubuki, which is basically, let's get a group of women uh, f- uh, pilots. They will be piloting World War II type planes uh, and doing a bunch of cool dogfights and missions in this kind of desert wasteland where there's dirigibles too. So I am enjoying that. The only negatives about the show is you might not like the look of the show because it's made by the same people who made the new Berserk seasons. So it kind of has this sort of plastic CG uh, PS3 game look at times. But I got past that. And the thing that disappointed me about the show to a certain degree is I was hoping it was based off a manga. Nope, it's promotional material for a new mobile game that is coming. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah, but I'm (laughs) fully enjoying it, and Austin, I'm going to be a little mean. If you can use some editing magic, put in that opening song. It's so catchy. It's it's an earworm. It's awesome. So after this segment, put it in the podcast. (laughs) It shall be done. That's pretty much everything I've been watching. Cool. Sully, what about you? What have you been up to? So, uh, I've mostly been working on my panels that I'm hoping to uh, present at Animesma and Awa. So, uh, one of them is a Japanese film panel, and I've been kind of going over some of my selections. I had this huge, long list, and I had to narrow it down to 12, because when I when I pitched it to the to the columns, when I gave the submissions, I said, I'm all, or not 12, to 10, and I said, I'm only going to do 10. And so I've had to like go through them and pick, and so I've been watching a lot of them, and I'm really hoping that the things I pick will be um, exciting and uh, invigorating and something that the audience will get into, because when I showed the list to, uh, to someone that I kind of, uh, their opinion I respect, he said, do you really think that a bunch of like otaku are going to like get into the, some of these movies you've picked? So I'm hoping it's like you know, you know, some of these are silent and some of these are from the '30s and some of these are not really you know like a lot of anime. But hopefully the the love of Japanese filmmaking will prevail in choosing these movies, and I'm really hoping that that's the how it's going to work for me. Um, other than that, I bought a copy of the Devilman OVA Blu-ray. Uh, the one that has the two from the it was like the eighty nine ninety one, 
Um, I mm-hmm. have not had a chance to watch it, but I'm going to take some time the next time I have a free day and finally uh, give it a look because I've seen the clips of the infamous dub and it's mm-hmm. enough to make me want to uh, see it for myself because I know that has they they put on there the infamous dub like that was in the advertisements like they know how awful it is and that was kind of a selling point. Um, I have discovered that I just enjoy watching older stuff. I know that uh, before we started recording, Tobias was showing us uh, some of Dirty Pear, and I was kind of put off from it because of the name, and I had this assumption it was a cheesecakey, like very fan service show, but he's assured me it's not, so I'm probably going to check that out next. But, yeah. you know, when someone I mean, says. It, it, when I mean, it's got some cheese, but it's not nearly as, as bad as I think I, even I was thinking it was going to be. Uh, so I would say, if, if that's your worry, I would say at least check out the first few episodes to see if that really interests you. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of discovered that I have a taste that skews towards older things, and I really think it's okay, you know, to be kind of a casual watcher of the new stuff and then be more interested in kind of the retro feel of a lot of anime. I've heard really good things about Dororo, which is uh, this modern adaptation of one of the classic Tezuka manga that I've been meaning to check out, so you may want to give that a try. I also really want to check that out, yes, absolutely. To go back to Sailor Moon, uh, the Eternal editions of the manga ha- came out, and I really want to check those out, because when we got the, before Eternal editions, the most recent edition of the manga in English, uh, they were horrible. They were, like, littered with typos and strange grammatical errors and weird syntax and just, like, there was a blog that literally went volume by volume cataloging how bad these translations were, and so the the new Eternal editions are these very beautifully presented volumes that have more chapters in them and are printed on glossy paper and they have a brand new translation that from all accounts I've seen from sort of the Sailor Moon sources I trust are much better and so I'm really excited to get my hands on one of those when I finally get the chance. They're super big too. Yeah, it's. I've seen the Japanese that they're based on and they are beautiful volumes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, as for me, uh, I've been watching a couple things. Um, I've sort of been passively watching um, Clamp's '90s and uh, Magical Girl series, Magic uh, excuse me, Magic Knight Ray Earth, and uh, that's that's been pretty pretty entertaining. Uh, the English dub is pretty good, so I've just kind of been popping that on uh, every now and again and just watch a couple episodes. It's kind of like a um, like a 90s style um, isekai where the girl where these like three girls who are in uh, high school get sort of whisked off to this uh, fantasy world but they become magical girls and they get like upgraded swords and eventually they fight in robots so it's it's pretty wild and it's it's not like amazing or anything but it's pretty entertaining I've enjoyed what I've seen I've seen about maybe half of uh, the first one and then there's Magic Knight Ray Earth 2 um, which I'll might pick up at some point. Um, I really just picked this one up because I was able to find the uh, complete Anime Works DVD set of it um, for fairly cheap at the used bookstore. Uh, so I grabbed that and been watching that. That's pretty good. Uh, I've been slowly making it through um, uh, Violet Evergarden still. Uh, watching that, that's also really good. Um, uh, Tori and I have started planning a uh, Kyoto Animation panel that we're probably going to be doing at... Uh, uh, Animazement this year, uh, so I've been in addition to watching Violet Evergarden, I've been going back through my Kyo Annie backlog and trying to watch some more of their stuff. 
Um, I started up uh, Love, Chunibio, and Other Delusions Season 2, because I watched the first season whenever it came out way back in the day, but never watched the second season. So I'm watching a little bit of that. I started that back up last night, watched a couple episodes. It's a pretty cute show. Um, and I've been getting through Tomiko Market, uh, which is also very good, directed by Naoko Yamada mm-hmm. uh, from K-On! and A Silent Voice. So she's really great. Um, I'll be excited so, whenever you get to uh, Canon 2006, which I know KyoAni worked on. They did. I think they did that. Pretty. They did that in Clanon. Yeah, pretty sure Tori watched those, so I'm gonna pass. <laughs> oh, I don't. <laughs> Boom. I, I don't know if I have the energy to watch those keys. That key stuff. I really just, don't think you I can do. ignore Clanon. Watch Canon 2006. That's the better one. Ugh. We'll see. We'll see. But really, the thing that has taken up the bulk of my time lately is Kingdom Hearts 3, which Bill told me I wasn't allowed to talk about because he's a No, jerk. no, we have a timer. <laughs> There's a timer. <laughs> okay, well, uh, you guys are probably aware, if you follow me on Twitter or have heard me talk on this podcast... You've ever met points, Austin ever? Yeah, like every, <laughs> every, every third t-shirt in my drawer is a Kingdom Hearts t-shirt because I love that series a lot. Um, and Kingdom Hearts 3 came out last... Tuesday, and I've been playing it a little bit almost every day since then. I've already beaten it because uh, I wanted to go ahead and get through it before um, before Spoiler Town took over on the internet and everything. Uh, thankfully, I was able to dodge most of the spoilers, uh, even with all the leaks that happened like a month or so before the game came out. Um, but I'm generally very impressed by it. I liked it a lot. I've got a couple things that were not that. Um, couple criticisms i guess but generally speaking i'm very very pleased with it um it's a lot of fun the worlds are like really immersive i think the character writing uh, especially between sora donald and goofy is the best that it has ever been in the entire franchise um even all of the uh lines about finding ingredients and all that stuff <laughs> it's it's all it's all really great and i uh I, i'm loving all of the memes and the jokes that have come out of that game and it's really fun and surprisingly the most difficult part is the cooking mini game with remy like that's that stuff's brutal <laughs> um but yeah, the game's the game's really fun. I would highly recommend it. It's it's awesome, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, we will be doing a bonus episode all about Kingdom Hearts three within the next hopefully month or so. Uh, so look out for that in the future. So another third impact related news, Tobias. Can you tell folks about the thing that we just got to do and put up on the podcast feed? Well, we we do a lot, but uh, in particular, probably referring to the Tiffany Grant interview. Uh, we got uh, that, that was a lot of fun to record again. Thank you so much to Tiffany for coming on and speaking with us, dumb nerds, for an hour or so. Uh, I think it turned out really, really well. People really seemed to enjoy it, uh, and of course, that's sort of a lead up into a larger Ava project we've got planning. We're still kind of still planning that out. Still don't see exactly what we're going to do with that, but uh, you know, uh, later in the year when the series gets released on Netflix, I think May is the current projected. Uh, like estimated date for that, uh, yeah, something we'll, like that. We'll uh, we'll certainly release a lot more uh, a lot more news near to that. So if you're an Ava fan like we are, you know the third Impact Anime podcast. I think you'll get a kick out of uh, of the things we've got planned. I think so too. So in terms of convention stuff that we've got planned, um, two things. 
Uh, number one, we are official guest panelists for uh, Triad Anime Convention, which is coming up in Winston-Salem in the middle of March, I believe. I don't remember the specific dates, but we will include that in the show notes. Um, but uh, some of us will be there. We're going to be doing a whole, whole ton of panel content. Uh, for that convention, and we really appreciate uh, Triad bringing us out as guests for that, so thank you very much. Uh, in addition to that, later in what was it? Uh, I think it's like two weeks after Triad. Yeah, okay, two weeks after Triad, uh, Tobias, you, and a few of the contingents and friends of ours from Midshelf Gaming will be at Playthrough Convention, so you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, so Playthrough is a relatively new video game convention in Raleigh, uh, the same uh, location as Animazement, so if you've ever been to that huge cavernous uh, convention center, you sort of know all the space they've got you know, available. But it's a, a fun little thing. Uh, they've had uh, Ryan and I out the past few years just to do a couple panels, and uh, we're going to be going back out uh, this year to do even more panel content. So if you're more Woo-hoo! like a video game you know, nerd, if you're into the, the, the whole mid-shelf channel that uh, Ryan and company have just recently created, which you should go check out on YouTube, uh, feel free to come out to that if you're local and come hang out with us. Heck yeah. Looking forward to seeing everybody. All right, folks. Well, after that, um, oh, actually, just real quick, um, to find out more uh, updates on all the projects that we do related to podcast panels, all that stuff, uh, make sure to hit up our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thirdimpactanime, and over there you can find a link to our Facebook community group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash community. And uh, we've got a really great little Facebook community going on over there where we talk about uh, not only stuff that we do, but just interesting topics in the anime and video game world um, where we share like links and trailers mm. and fun polls about various things and just fun stuff. And it's, it's good, good uh, camaraderie, good conversations. We try and keep the memes to a minimum because we know that that's kind of the worst thing about Facebook anime communities. Just too many memes and too much cosplay for my taste. Too much fun. We are a no-fun zone. (laughs) Um, If you want to find out more general information about Third Impact, please hit us up on our website, which is thirdimpactanime.com. Oh, and our Twitter. But you can find that easily on the website. Anyway. uh, Yes, let's go ahead and move into the topic at hand. Urusei Yatsura 2, Beautiful Dreamer. So let's get into it. Sully, can you give us some background on not only this movie that we're going to be talking about, but what in the world this obnoxious series called Urusei Yatsura is? So Urusei Yatsura is a manga by Rumiko Takahashi about a boy named Atara Muraboshi 
who, long story short, ends up having a girlfriend from outer space who is named Lum. And Lum is from another planet where all of the aliens are like the oni of Japanese mythology. And over the course of the series, Ataru comes to meet Lum's family and her friends from other planets. And all of the aliens are based on Japanese mythological figures. And his life is turned upside down by her crazy antics. And this movie, Urusei Yatsura 2, Beautiful Dreamer, is the second of the Urusei Yatsura movies from the anime, which came out in 1983, I believe. The original manga came out in 1978, and this was directed by Mamoru Oshii, who directed the first 100 or so episodes of the anime before leaving and being replaced by another director. And after the first movie, Only You, uh, premiered, it was very much like a, a long episode of the anime, so it wasn't anything particularly unique. It was kind of fan servicey, and Oshii really wanted to do something radically different, so he sort of took the helm of the project and steered it into a very different direction as I'm sure we're all going to end up talking about and uh, he and Takahashi had some uh, I won't say they have they had words because they really didn't they uh, they were kind of from all accounts I can find somewhat frosty towards each other but uh, I would definitely say this is one of the best anime films ever made even if I have conflicting opinions about Oshi as a director and as a person and in his relationship with Takahashi and her sort of legacy with the work. Uh, so just to do a real quick uh, cast and crew breakdown here before we get into the discussion of the movie. Uh, so Lum is voiced by Fumi Hirano. Uh, she appeared in many iconic series like Lupin the Third, Love Live, One Piece, M.D. Geist, the greatest anime film ever made. Uh, and she's actually the Japanese dub voice of Sarah Jane Smith. So I figured you would appreciate what? that, Bill. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, yep. <laughs> Ataru is voiced by Toshio Furukawa, who is a pretty frequent animation attendee. He's been to the convention of good handful of times he is taro in dr slump he is probably most famously other than ataru he is piccolo in dragon ball uh, he is shin in fist of the north star he is lupon in the fuma conspiracy which we did a review of probably about six months ago or so and he is a bunch of roles in various different gundam series uh, shinobu is voiced by saiko shimazu who is uh, in a lot of anime adaptations of um, Rumiko Takahashi works. Uh, she is Sayoko in My Sunny Koku, she's Kodachi in Ranma One Half, Abihime in Inuyasha, and she's also Yuri in Dirty Pair, which we talked about earlier, and the narrator in Magic Knight Ray Earth, which we also talked about earlier. Uh, Mendo is voiced by Akira Kamiya, who is Ryo in City Hunter and Kinshiro in Fist of the North Star. Sakura is voiced by Machiko Washio, who is uh, a couple characters in a few Studio Ghibli movies, and relatively little else apart from Sakura. She doesn't have a very uh, lengthy anime career as an actress. And Mujaki, the uh, demon of dreams, or whatever it was that they called him, uh, is voiced by Takuya Fujioka, who's a fairly prolific live-action uh, actor. Uh, he passed away in, I believe, the mid-2000s. He was the Japanese voice actor of Donald Duck in the 1950s, uh, and also appeared in the original Astro Boy TV series. 
as far as the crew goes, um, like Sully mentioned earlier, it was directed by Mamoru Oshii. And if you're not familiar with Mamoru Oshii by name, you've probably seen something that he's worked on, or at least heard of the things that he has worked on. Uh, he is the director of the original Ghost in the Shell film, as well as Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence. Both, you know, massively iconic uh, anime uh, works that uh, continue to be enjoyed and talked about for uh, years and years after their release. He also uh, directed Angel's Egg, the uh, very um, surrealist uh, art piece from the uh, late 80s uh, that is also very famous and very famously unavailable in the United States, which really sucks. Unfortunately. Um, and he also, yeah. And he also directed a lot of the Pat Labor franchise, including the movies. Um, I think he directed all of the movies, at least at least the first two, I believe, with the second one being probably the most critically acclaimed. Uh, the character designer for this particular movie, uh, of course the characters were originally designed by Rumiko Takahashi, uh, but the character designs for this film are is from um, Akemi Takata, who also designed the characters for Pat Labor and Kimigure Orange Road. Uh, the art director is a gentleman that we've talked about a couple of times, Shichiro Kobayashi, who is also the art director on Berserk, Angel's Egg, again, Castle, uh, excuse me, Lupin III, Castle of Cagliostro, and The Fuma Conspiracy. Uh, he was the art director on Gogo 13, The Professional, Revolutionary Girl Utena, Venus Wars, and many, many other things. Uh, the anime, One of the animation directors, I thought this was interesting just because I'm a big fan of this particular work, is Yuji Moriyama, who is the creator of Project Eiko, which is something we have definitely got to do an episode on in the future. So, Sully, since you sort of uh, brought the idea of doing this podcast to us, you are the Urusei Yatsura fan in the group more so than, than all of us. Uh, even though we were, uh, we've been familiar with it obviously for a while because it's just an anime thing that you pick up. Of, oh, hold on, I'm gonna start that over because my brain was turning to squid. Um, yep. So Sully, since you sort of introduced us to uh, the idea of doing this episode and to Urusei Yatsura at large, can you just give us your background? Like, how did you discover this series? So how I got into Yurusei Yatsura was actually because of you, because um, you had the or the first opening in your uh, sort of rotation of openings when you used to run the anime club, and I saw it, and I thought, oh, what is this? It looks really cute. And you said, oh, it's Yurusei Yatsura. I haven't seen it. I don't know much about it. So like that day, I went home and looked it up, and then I just like totally fell in love with it. And I think the reason why is because... Uh, even though it's not a magical girl series in like the the modern understanding of the term it is like a magical girlfriend show and it reminds me so much of bewitched which i watched a ton of when i was a kid on tv land i like love that show and you know it kind of is the same basic premise just swapping witches for aliens so instead of you know darren and samantha she's a witch and her magical relatives cause trouble for darren it's uh, Ataru is dating an alien and Lum's friends and family from other planets are the ones causing trouble and her magic powers or her scientific science fiction powers are the things causing the problem of the day or the problem of the episode. So I think that's really why I fell so hard for it. It really is a kind of show about, you know, being in love with love itself and I, I really like relate to that, that theme. So, you know... That shows up in this movie, too, and how it can be sort of an unhealthy thing and a, a, a beautiful thing. And I think 
that's sort of the ethos of Yurumoko Takahashi's original manga, which is more of a romantic comedy, is, you know, you know, this alien girl is crazy for this Earth kid, and he doesn't want to admit that he is, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tobias, did you have any background with Urusei Yatsura before this? Uh, a little. I kind of jumped into this, uh, the, the, the series, uh, also kind of at a, you know anime club in college, but interestingly enough, I completely forgotten uh, when I watched this movie, but I had seen this uh, a de- almost two decades earlier, uh, back when the Sci-Fi Channel was still the Sci-Fi Channel, and they were running uh, anime movies during the summer, particularly. I happen to have caught this movie between watching some of the Galaxy Express movies and I think the like uh, the Fatal Fury movie. And I had completely forgotten about this movie. Like I had very vague recollection recollection of Beautiful Dreamer, until I rewatched it uh, about a year or so ago. And there just parts of these uh, these scenes pop into my head, particularly the scene uh, near the end where they trap uh, the demon uh, in the half submerged school. Like I vividly mm-hmm. remember that scene in particular, watching that as a kid. I don't know why. That's the only thing I really remember from watching it back then, but being able to sort of have that come back in my uh just like in my perception of anime after two decades of nearly forgetting about it was very interesting and also very appropriate considering the themes of a beautiful dreamer i would say <laughs> it's almost like i'm reliving anime as a whole and and, and my and my fandom but yeah. uh had but between that and uh, this podcast i've seen quite a few people talk about the more uh interesting visual aspects some of the scenes uh in particular near the beginning and in the middle with the part where shinobu gets lost uh, as they're sort of walking Mm -hmm. to and from school uh, something that just stuck out in my head very interesting visually and it's always been on my list to sort of check out until i did so and uh yeah just really really enjoy this movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh i guess for me my my background is very, very superficial because I'm still kind of just getting into Urusei Yatsura. Um, but what really sparked me getting interested in it was about probably about a year or a year and a half ago, um, uh, the ANN cast had on uh, Anime Nostalgia, uh, Don from Anime Nostalgia, um, on as a guest to talk about uh, Rumiko Takahashi's works at large. And uh, her and uh, Zach Birchie were just talking about like what their favorite rumiko takahashi pieces were and at that point uh tori and i had sort of kind of not really wanted to do like a big rewatch of inuyasha but we were watching some of it um we watched like 10 or so episodes of inuyasha and like i i never watched it back in the day so i really had no preconceived notions about it at all and honestly from what i saw i was like okay you know what this isn't the greatest thing ever but it's it's kind of fun i get i get why people would it would like this i've heard it gets like very repetitive and and silly and not in a good way um the longer it goes on but i was enjoying it so far um most prominently probably from like an aesthetic point of view because i really like uh rumiko takahashi's character designs generally speaking um but just hearing zach and don talk about it and how much they liked Urusei Yatsura above anything else that she had done. Uh, it really made me curious about the series, so I looked into it a little bit. I put the opening in that uh, in that reel that Sully talked about, and then 
then Sully got mega into it, and then Sully getting mega into it uh, inspired me to check out a little bit of it out. So I watched a bit of the show, and I watched one of the movies that I picked up at a flea market at, uh, I think, Triad Con, like, last year. It was um, movie four, I believe, Lum, Lum yes. the Forever. Yes, um, because you gave it to me afterwards. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. Uh, yeah, I watched that kind of passively, and I thought it was pretty good. But, um, yeah, the first time I really, like, deeply engaged with Urusei Yatsura was through watching this movie. Um, and I watched it for the first time maybe... It wasn't too long after I bought it, which wasn't too long after it came out, so maybe a year ago. And then this time I sat down and watched it a little bit more intently, so... Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film, and I'm looking forward to getting into more Yatsura stuff, even though I know not everything is necessarily like Beautiful Dreamer. It's kind of funny, because when you mentioned it coming out a year ago, I remember I ordered three copies, and two of them were for you to buy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I remember uh, I met with you, and I was like, here's your lung. <laughs> <laughs> the goods. The goods. <laughs> What about you, Bill? Or, or are we just? Are you just along for the ride with with us? Um, my personal experience with the Yatsura franchise is all through Sully, because uh, by the time I had heard about it for the first time, Sully was really into it. Um, mm-hmm. I had watched the first episode, and I think like the first ten or maybe fifteen with Sully, and then it kind of left my mind the things that stuck out with me with Yatsura is the openings the first opening song from the television television show which is really catchy mm-hmm. and I really like uh, Takahashi's character designs but mm-hmm. for me personally well I can see why people would get into it it's that the show was not my cup of tea because it's very much a anime comedy and for me anime and comedy usually I usually don't like. I usually don't like anime comedy, where unless it's Pop Team Epic. Uh, yeah. Unless it's, that's a rare. That's <laughs> one of the rare exceptions. Uh, <laughs> very rare, um, because usually I don't like the whole kind of. Um, you did. You did this. You did what? Or what are you doing right now? That this sort of like, this is not what you not what you think it is. Uh, scenarios that are always into anime comedies and sort of the um, gag type humor that's within anime comedies so I came in I would completely agree with that I I feel like anime comedy can be very hit or miss and they do a lot of that like feigned shock a lot of times Mm -hmm. and I feel like from a western perspective we're already way used to that we're way over that so it's just kind of like it doesn't really work for our sensibilities so much no I, I, I think you're it doesn't. I think you're completely right. Um, so I came in into Beautiful Dreamer with kind of low expectations of, oh, I, this is probably just going to be like a regular fare of the franchise. Of It's going to be a comedy and a lot of skags and sort of the, this isn't what it's like. Or, it's not what you think it is. Lum, please don't zap me. Uh, but no, I... Uh, watching the movie it's it's something a lot more where it to me it seemed like Oshi uh was probably tired of the same uh jokes day after day from working on the tv series in the first movie 
and he decided I just want to do something different because I'm I, I have a lot of ideas and I'm just going to use this franchise to express my ideas <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. they, they they will just accept it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean that pretty much is what happened. Um, the first movie was like I said uh, kind of just like a long episode of the TV series and Oshu felt like it was kind of a waste of time he was unimpressed with it it did well I mean it was a as he calls it an event movie and I think it was released in the summer but uh, when he was assigned to the second movie he wanted to do more and so he wrote the movie and he sort of it was kind of it was an auteur piece basically and I think in many ways Beautiful Dreamer is kind of the the rough sketches, the preliminaries for Angel's Egg. I mean, if you've seen Angel's Egg, many of the scenes in Beautiful Dreamer are uh, lifted completely into that movie. And uh, like I said, him and Takahashi had a very kind of rocky relationship because Oshi, as much as I enjoy a lot of his work, like I think he's made some beautiful, thought-provoking, very striking films... I would I, I always say he's not the sort of person I would ever want to visit and like spend time with at a cocktail party because he seems just very very pretentious and very very uh, stuck on himself in some ways. So I, he has some I, very um, very rigid uh, views on uh, gender dynamics, and that in many ways comes through in his uh, in his writing of Lum and the other female characters in the series. Mm-hmm. Or in in this ver in this movie because I don't think he was a writer for many episodes on the TV series. I'd have to check again, um, but I that's why many people when they're thrown into this movie, I've I've found that the best way to to advertise it as imagine if someone were to make their own movie and say, but I want to use these characters. That's how it is because you you need to really only see the first episode to kind of get the rest of the movie even though there's some things that need explanation like uh mendo why he has all this like military equipment well his family is like obscenely and like astronomically wealthy and he does these sorts of things in the show but you kind of catch on to that uh after a while but uh other than like a few in jokes about the series it's almost completely a standalone piece and a beautiful one at that Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I would agree. Going into this, I'd only seen the first few episodes. So where, where I was, they've only sort of introduced uh, Ataru's classmates. Uh, Mendo hasn't had any shown him shown up at that point. So watching right. it the first time, I was a little confused of who the, who all these like the secondary cast were. But after after having watching it the first time and like you said, acclimating myself to their little idiosyncrasies. Watching it again with that in mind, it made things a much more enjoyable watch because I could focus on like the, the backgrounds, like the way these these shots were framed, and a lot of the like half jokey, half surreal moments throughout the series. It was it's much more enjoyable for me to watch it a second time uh, and becoming familiar with these characters. So I would I would say personally, as anyone jumping into this for the first time, yeah, go ahead and watch the first few episodes of the TV series if you can if you can like find those. Uh, get a little familiar with who like Lama Nataru and Shinobu are, and get the whole gist of what they're about. That whole like sort of uh, like you said, like a romantic comedy aspect there. But I don't feel like you've got to watch all 100 plus episodes of Urusei Yatsura to enjoy Beautiful Dreamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it definitely is something that can be enjoyed 
Um, I think even if you don't know anything about Urusei Atsura, you can kind of watch it and it be... In a way, it might make it even more surreal if you do, if you don't know anything, and it is it is that move. The movie works so much on dream logic. Like rewatching it again recently, I just am struck with how well Oshi makes it seem like how a dream works. How you know at the very beginning it seems very logical, and it slowly the the reality of the world unravels. Like when you if you think when you wake up from a dream. When you start dreaming, everything in the dream seems to make perfect sense, and then as you become more and more cognizant as you wake up, it starts to seem more and more fantastical. Mm -hmm. So, like, that was something that really hit me on this rewatch. Mm -hmm. So, before we jump too far in deep on that, Sully, can you sort of, you don't have to spoil everything or whatever, but can you just generally break down the story of the movie, like what it's about and how it goes? So the basic plot, although it's kind of hard to kind of have a linear narrative with this, yeah. is that uh, one day when um, the students of the Tomobikicho High School are getting ready for their festival, um, they start noticing that every day is repeating itself, like Groundhog Day, uh, the film Groundhog Day. Mm -hmm. And slowly, as they become more cognizant to the repetition, they notice that the buildings are starting to collapse, it's starting to become more ruinous, and... Uh, the people are disappearing and noticeably people who start becoming a little too aware of the situation start vanishing and they discover that they are stuck in a dream and the question is whose dream are they stuck in? Mm -hmm. mm. And I think one thing that the film does exceptionally well, um, I was checking the, uh, the runtime throughout the film to sort of match it up to how the narrative progresses um, and it takes them about like the movie is is about an hour and 38 minutes long so it's not super long or anything it's not super short either it's it's about somewhere right in the middle of length um so they use the first 30 minutes to set up the idea that something is wrong um and they do that very slowly very subtly um and in very creative ways and then the middle part of the movie is sort of them like frantically trying to figure out like what's going on how do we fix it you know how do we get unstuck from this problem that we're in um and then the last 30 minutes is like sort of breaking up into two parts it's like them accepting that their world is weird and then them suddenly figuring out how to fix it and then like sort of rushing to get it fixed at the very end um can i can i make one little observation with with that plot is the one yeah. the one thing that kind of confused me at first is kind of when they're in that investigation phase a lot of the classmates and Art Artaru are kind of like whatever about it they they mm -hmm. seem to just kind of they don't seem they seem kind of just ignore it or not be kind of in a shock state maybe this is me over analyzing the movie but the only people that seem to like get a little like shocked by it and are trying to examine it are the two staffs uh two staff members of the school and um what's his name the guy with the sword mendo mendo you thank mm. you uh they're the only ones that seem to be like something's wrong and they and mm -hmm. the kind of the emotional uh kind of dealing with it whereas the classmates are kind of like whatever i think that just points to like their maturity levels because like the 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 Ataru gang are just sort of a bunch of dumb idiots and they're kind of they're really goofy and not all that bright 
So it's like, of course, like the d- adults care about what's going on. Of course, like Mendo cares because he's, you know, the the smart one, quote unquote, I guess. But yeah, the other guys are just so goofy. They're just like, oh no, things are going wrong. I guess we're just gonna go with it now and all that stuff. And that's kind of how they are in the show too. Is it's partially well, I'm assuming Ataru is just so used to his world being upended like every week <laughs> with his alien girlfriend. That's like, of course, every day is repeating. You know, last week I had my entire masculinity sucked out of me, and the weekend before that I owed money to a cosmic taxi driver. <laughs> Who knows what's happening anymore? But like at the same time, um, I think it's kind of a weakness of the film, which I guess you know, spoilers if you haven't seen it, but. Uh, so much of the plot with when it comes to Ataru is, you know, he's just kind of in the background. It's Mindo and uh, Sakura who are really the ones who are going, you know, hmm, what's going on? Let's get to the bottom of this. And then in the end, it turns out, spoiler, it's Lum's dream because she wants to be with Ataru and his friends forever. And it kind of draws Ataru back into the narrative. And I kind of feel like I wish he would have been more involved in some way. There is a scene where they're trying to kind of uh, trick the uh the dream demon by uh acting as though they suspect Ataru of something and uh that kind of gives him some relevance to the plot but other than that it's not until the end that he really seems to have much of a reason to be in the story which is kind of funny because in the original manga it was supposed to be him every week facing off against some new weirdo of the week and then Lum was so popular that she became the reason why these events happened to him and he stopped being the main character. I think that's probably at least contributory to the fact that Oshi wanted to make this movie a lot more about the kids rather than the alien antics. So he probably wanted to give like Ataru and Lum a little bit of the uh, the bench, I guess, in favor of like Mendo and Sakura because they're kind of in a lot of the film, they're kind of the the acting force um, for a lot of the things that happen. And there's a lot of scenes that follow, like Sakura specifically. Um, like she probably has the most dialogue in the entire film, mm-hmm. which I'm really glad for because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Mendo as a character in the series mm-hmm. and Sakura in the series. She's she's very much like she is in the movie, but uh, there she's often reduced to being the joke of being the sexy school nurse, uh, kind mm-hmm. of a an object of Ataru's lecherousness. So it's nice mm-hmm. to have her be more of a uh, a free agent in the narrative and her working with Mendo is I mean it's, it seems like a very logical character pairing because in the show mm-hmm. they are typically the two smartest people in the room even though Mendo does have a sort of a weak side and kind of a uh, mm-hmm. his own uh, foibles and lecherousness that comes out more and more in, in the in the anime than in here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure this was probably at least on some level intentional, but I thought that especially in the scene where they're in the uh, where they're in the car going home, like Mendo and um, Ataru going home for the first time in the in the movie. Um, and like Mendo is sitting there with his eyes closed and his sword in his lap. I'm just like, he looks exactly like Satsuki Kiryuin, but a dude. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that stern face, those eyebrows, the dark hair, and the sword and the white suit. So I'm just like, Studio Trigger, you just made a a male ver- or a female version of of Mendo, at least in in uh, aesthetics. I mean, He's a lot almost... of these characters are based on uh, you know Project Aiko, which we mentioned earlier. So they're they're definitely yep. maybe somewhere in the DNA of the anime DNA. There's definitely some oh absolutely. There. Yep. I mean, in the anime, he frequently appears again with bizarre military equipment or what have you, and 
he will fight for the honor of every girl in Tomobiki High School, especially mm-hmm. Shinobu, who he is, you know, very much in love with. And the whole reason, actually, I think he exists as a character was, again, the idea was Ataru and Shinobu were going to be the couple, and Lum was just going to be a one-time sort of, you know, wrench in that pairing. But then when Ataru and Lum became the two couples that the readers were rooting for, uh, Takahashi introduced Mendo to kind of give Shinobu, Shinobu someone to uh, have a relationship with, because basically Lum is a homewrecker in that situation. <laughs> so she was kind of trying to rewrite that and fix it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh you know what's I the the favorite the thing I love about this movie is the camera the really cool visual tricks that Oshi does with the camera mm-hmm. like the my favorite two scenes in the movie are one when uh, Ataru and Mendo are driving and you yes. see Ataru looking at uh, these all these kind of shops that are closed and his reflection within the glass. And it's it's like it's a never-ending uh, hall of mirrors, uh, mm-hmm. and with the um, kind of the mysterious group of uh, they look like children, kind of singing, doing some music in the background. It's an ondo uh, marching band, I believe. Or they mentioned they are sales, like it's a sales thing, and I think mm-hmm. it is like a, a promotion thing in Japan. But they're doing a traditional type of Japanese march. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so I um. Go ahead, Bill. I was, I was, you, you can go ahead. I was just going to mention my second scene. I'll go for it because I think what I'm about to say is related to the idea you were trying and to convey. My, the, my other favorite trick with the camera is when, um, who's the guy? He's the, he's like uh, in the military um, soldier hat and is kind of like their advisor. <laughs> uh, Magane. My, thank you, Magane, where he's talking. Uh, I'm sorry, people. I suck at names. The 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 um the nurse the Sakura. Sakura, thank you. Talking to Sakura about like his theory of the deja vu, and slowly the camera oh, starts to. No, to... you're you're talking about Onsen Mark, not uh, when you said in the military cap. Thought... Yes, their teacher. Oh, okay. Yes, Onsen Mark. Uh, where he's where he's slowly kind of talking about like he's thinking he's going through deja vu going through the same day over and over again and the camera starts to go in a circle and it starts to go faster and faster yes. and faster until near the end it's in complete darkness mm-hmm. there are is, so many shots in this movie that are that revolve around repetition and, and mirroring I know like in that scene you're talking about when she puts the glass of water down and it bifurcates his face and you see like the the reflection of his face in the glass or Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. when he's on the back of the bicycle with her and you see them driving and they sort of drive out of shot and then the camera like they catch up with the camera in some way that sort of shocked me because I thought it might have been another set of characters coming but no it's them it's they're repeating and mirroring themselves like or when Shinobu is looking down the hallway in the sort of Scooby-Doo-esque scene where they're running throughout the school (laughs) and she just sees herself repeated ad infinity it's just it's you know I notice it it, like more and more every time I watch this movie like I catch a new way that uh, they come back to that theme of mirrors and repetition Mm 
Mm-hmm. I think one thing that consistently makes Mamoru Oshii's film so visually and tonally compelling is just his ability to do stuff like that. Like it's it's crazy the amount of like scenes that he comes up with to present certain f- certain emotions in certain visual ways. And I think that's honestly what makes mm-hmm. him such a such a fantastic director. Um, but in terms of like mood and stuff that you uh, mentioned earlier, Bill, like especially with the scene. Uh, with them driving and uh, seeing the like throughout the abandoned uh, city and there's a lot of moments uh, where they're doing things like riding the train or riding in a taxi cab or walking down the street where it's like in normal reality you would expect to see those places like thoroughly populated by people because those are you know obviously public transportation things you expect people to be on them even at weird times of the day uh, and there's one quote that i pulled out from one of the uh, uh interviews that i read that you sent to us solely and i just wanted to read it because it really stood out to me um uh, he was talking about onsen mark and his um just the way that he's portrayed in the in the beginning of the film uh, and uh, oshi says i felt the same way he does in the film dead tired this teacher had forgotten the last time he had gone home and I had gotten to thinking the same thing in the studio, wondering when I had been home last. I basically copied how I felt into the characters. The same connection exists with the train the characters ride to get home. I've gone on many late night trains. No one gets on, and I always wonder where the train will stop. These are the delusions that are common late at night, like when you're riding the bus. You've ridden on it many times before, but do you feel like you don't know where you're going? Especially when it's raining. You start to wonder if this is really your town. It can get pretty scary. Humans tend to put distance between themselves and their everyday lives. When they're tired, they tend to feel that way. And I thought that was just a really great way to put it. And I think we've all been there where we're doing things that we would normally do, except we're doing them when we're really tired and how that um, can affect our perception. And that works well with this film, too, because it's all about sort of the liminal space between reality and the dreams and, like, um, things being ways that they typically shouldn't be. Uh, So I thought that the way that that is illustrated in the film was just just brilliant. I actually just noticed today, actually, that that interview I sent to all of you is actually taken from the director's commentary on the Blu-ray because I was watching it and I was like... I've, I've read this, and I look. it's literally the same interview, but um, I noticed nice. one thing I find very interesting is he says, you know, making this movie was like them working on the school festival, that, you know, right. it's, you know, late nights, lots of work, uh, you know, kind of a, a feeling of lost time, and he said he felt like mm-hmm. Anson Mark because he felt like the teacher, being the director, that he was sort of shepherding these animators and he said that he compared them to being you know angry complaining teenagers and it was just a sort of interesting mm-hmm. that he sort of projected himself onto Anson Mark who is sort of the almost the saddest character in this movie he's the one that seems to be the most beaten by the situation and uh, Oshi even mentions that he's uh, licensed to teach grade school and I thought what a horrifying thought. <laughs> what a terrifying idea is Oshi with a bunch of third graders giving them all existential dilemmas. Um, <laughs> I'd want to be in that third grade class. <laughs> but I really think that this film has this magical way of capturing that feeling of 
of, again, repetition, but loneliness, too. I mean, mm. even when you're on a bus, like on a public bus, I've, I've, I rode buses all throughout my college career, and they are very lonely places because even if you're surrounded by people, you might as well not be. I've taken a bus late at night, and there are people on it, but it does feel like he describes, like it's, am I, you know, you can't see the usual landmarks in the dark necessarily, and you, you're sort of isolated yet surrounded by people. You do feel like you're in another reality, and you don't know if you're going to get back to the one you're from. It's a sort of terrifying liminal space. Yeah, and you see, you see that a lot in a lot of the transportation scenes. Uh, the, 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 the few times where, um, I want to say, where Mendo's trying to take Shinobu home and where Sakura is taking the taxi, uh, when, the, when the camera pans out to the outside of the car, you never see the background. You only see the street lights that just sort of create this, this hallway, really, this infinite hallway that they're driving down. And that's reversed, for example, when... Um, uh, when Mindo is trying to get back to the school and all you see is the headlight and you don't see anything except what the headlights are shining on in particular and they're going through these alleyways this almost maze-like alley you know, system of alleys and you see nothing but the little you know yellow lit circle in the center of the screen and it, it, it just feels so surreal uh, you know trying to navigate that outside so I completely see where you're coming from uh, in that mm-hmm. degree mm-hmm. and uh, I think also you have to look at this movie at when the time period it was made because in today uh, and i think today people would kind of think this movie might be a little passe with the uh what's reality man type <laughs> uh that's kind of been mined to death from movies like groundhog day and inception in modern pop culture uh topics but i think that at the time period that this was released, this was probably something that was a new concept at the time, and that people really uh, that people really um, took a hold of, and that's why this movie is so memorable. And I think what works, mm-hmm. we you know talked about Oshii's pedigree and, and whatnot, but I feel like there's so many scenes in this movie where there's just an atmosphere <clears throat> of of this that dreamlike state, like it's so easy to talk about anime plot and you know just in general talk about these character tropes and all this stuff but this this movie seems to always capture this atmosphere around it there's just a combination of like the low-key music or the way the scenes are framed like we talked about but like i'm going through watching it again for this podcast like i'm just amazed at how well he was able to capture that feeling uh even in the beginning mm-hmm. where you see uh, where they're all working at the school festival everything is just a crazy mishmash of people running back and forth half the people are in like godzilla costumes or ultraman costumes <laughs> and it's just so weird mm-hmm. and like that that whole segment for me ends when uh Onsen mark is hanging off the tank cannon you know with you know, three <laughs> stories in the air and lum just casually lands on that like the tank like that scene is just so perfect to me and that sets up just how dreamlike not only you know you say Asura can be in its in its general idea but does this movie in particular and going through you know the whole movie you've got scenes like where the tank is suddenly in the swimming pool like it just mm-hmm. shows up and on the one hand yes that's a very comedic uh you know takahashi thing to do just seeing that the way the camera is framed and having them deal with that situation again it just has that little hint of oshi surrealism which just really mm-hmm. man it blew me away just watching and seeing that 
uh, constantly through the movie. And I know we talk about um, <clears throat> other movies that have a similar like dream setting, like uh, mentioned Groundhog Day, which you know they they asked Oshi, do you think that the uh, the crew of Groundhog Day took from Beautiful Dreamer and all I can think is oh yes I'm sure those in the Bill Murray er orbit at that time <laughs> in American history were really deeply involved in the movies of anime auteur Mamoru Oshii yes why of course that must be where they come but no um or even just takes one weeb man just, one hey, weeb can change the world one weeb can spoil the broth um <laughs> but um <laughs> But, uh, or even something like, um, Lord, Bill mentioned it, I can't think of the name of it, that, uh... Inception? Inception. Inception. Uh, even comparing this to, like, Inception, I think, uh, Beautiful Dreamer captures a, a dream atmosphere better than any movie, many other movies I've ever seen. I mean, going to the, the tank in oh, the pool yeah, scene, totally. You know, think about dreams. They they work on their own logic, and I think so many lean too heavy into the sort of Magritte Dolly surrealism of a dream, and not the sort of it makes sense to itself. But then when you think about it later, it doesn't. Like I could see myself having a dream where I could say, "Yes, well, the tank was in the pool," and someone would say, "What do you mean?" And oh, well, yeah. Now that you say that, yeah, tank doesn't belong in a pool, and how to get there? Well, it was just there. Like it made sense that it was there when I was dreaming it, but looking back you know or even the mm -hmm. landscape i mean the school is normal in the beginning of the of the film but then over time there's this dichotomy of the night scenes are pitch black you can see nothing you can get nowhere and then the daytime scenes everything is in ruins and it's like mad max all of a sudden but the characters don't seem necessarily mm -hmm. to address that but they take it as this is how the world is and how, like, all the characters didn't know, except Sakura, that the school had gained another story. It's just, like, it didn't even occur to them because they were sort of in a dream state and they were focused on the thing that they were trying to do that they didn't even really notice. And the th this is kind of going on uh, the themes of the movie, but one thing that got me thinking is when they kind of realize the situation they're in and that Asaru's home gets water electricity the kind of the mini mart that's close to his house is always mm -hmm. restocked with food so that they that way and, they, and the newspaper the newspaper is always <laughs> delivered and it, it kind of got me thinking of year this is some people would kind of call it a paradise because you're free to do whatever you want you're all mm -hmm. your needs are taken care of but it got me thinking is we need interaction with people because i think that's one thing that drives some of the characters a little insane is just like yeah we're taken care of but i need that social interaction of the town i need to see people mm -hmm. even with all because it doesn't feel it i feel it feels off to mm -hmm. uh to, to me um just kind of walking around and not being able to really talk to anyone mm -hmm. that i that wasn't already uh, kept here and the, so yeah, sorry go ahead I was gonna say once once you finished up, I I based on what you were saying, I had a question for Sully. So go ahead and finish your thought. Oh no, that was it. Well, I was okay. gonna I was gonna sort of butt in there and say that uh, yeah no I, I I agree. I think that you see that in a lot of other media, this more escapist style media, where there's always this urge to go back to to reality to what what belongs, and I see that you you really get that throughout the the story. Very early on, of course, Sakura and Mendo and Ansina Mark are really trying to push to make things right. Uh, 
And, you know, at the end, we have the same thing with Ataru, where he realizes that, well, here's a reality where Lum doesn't exist. Uh, so maybe, you know, it's not right, and we should fight to fight to regain that, this, this actual reality. Actually, can I ask you about um, that, or get you guys' thoughts on that scene? I, I'm sorry if this is a tangent, but but when he basically talks to the... <clears throat> The, the person who's kind of created the, the dream state or helped create the dream state and this guy uh, and kind of gives him his ultimate fantasy of all these women just oogling over him and he's, he, he, he's like really happy but then he doesn't notice that Lum's there and it kind of got me thinking of just like wait he oogles at everybody and he kind of in the series he kind of like is it kind of a weird tug of war where just like yeah lum's cute but i she's also a real pain in to pain in my butt so it's kind of interesting to me that he even if she causes him annoyances or uh causes him pain she he still wants her in his world well even I, with all these other beautiful women well i think that's one of the things that the movie does beautifully and that i really love even if i like i said i sometimes feel like a taro and lum are sort of a side thought in the movie is to me my interpretation of their relationship is lum says i want to be with darling every day forever i want this i want to be with our friends and live in his house with his with his mom and dad and i want to be in love and i want this to never end and ataru his dream world is i want to be surrounded by women and be free and do whatever i want and be you know a playboy and also have lum and their relationship i think is them compromising and lum saying again she calls him darling she very rarely if ever calls him ataru she idolizes him. She she puts him on a pedestal, and it's her learning that he is uh, one a lech, but he's also has foibles and flaws, and uh, he has his mistakes like every other person. And that she can love him not as this ideal that she has of him being oh this earth man I have fallen in love with, and for um, Ataru it is learning that he wants her and that he wants her and that he's not happy without her because if he has this harem of all these women he wants lum it's not paradise if there is no lum so i think the sort of thesis is their relationship revolves around them having to compromise between ataru not really wanting to focus on love and wanting to focus on being a playboy and lum having to learn not to idealize love and see it as something that takes growth and change because her fantasy is just as immature as a immature as ataru's you know he wants a harem but she wants to live in a fairy tale where there's no strife or trouble or change she does not want change so i think that sort of the idea is them having to come together and they wake up when they realize that the dream is not healthy for them mm -hmm. yeah and that kind of goes into what i wanted to ask you Sully. like I guess generally speaking, and I don't know how much we should expect from a work like Urusei Yatsura when it comes to this, because these characters, they just kind of go on. They don't ever really change, necessarily. But how do you feel about, especially Lum in particular, because this whole movie is sort of based out of, like, 
the events of the film are born out of her inner wishes, her inner desires. So how do you feel about the characterization of Lum in this film? I think, again, even though she's kind of a background character, and I think that's part of the, the mechanics of the movie, she has to be, because otherwise she's too big of a suspect when they f- figure out that's her dream. But in the show... You know, it's played off as a joke. Oh, you're looking at another girl, I'm going to electrify you. Or, oh, you know, you're, I'm jealous, or I'm upset, or I'm not getting what I want. And, uh, but there's a few episodes that really stand out to me. There's what the Christmas one, the first Christmas one they do, where in the very end, it's her and Ataru walking together, holding hands, and he's wearing a scarf that she made him. I, I think that the characterization is very on point, at least for the anime version of Lum, um, where it's her sort of immaturity and her idealization of love, because, you know, the first, the, the reason she ends up with Ataru is because in the first episode, he uh, hears Shinobu say, if you win this and save the human race, I'll marry you, and then when he wins, he says, yes, I'm going to get married, and Lum thinks... He's referring to her, and she falls in love with him, and then starts living with him, and their relationship sort of grows as the series does, but it always sort of stays in that silly romantic comedy. But you can tell they become closer, and they become more affectionate towards each other, and they start to change who they are a little bit to better work with each other. And I think this movie kind of encapsulates that perfectly. So, do we want to address the Nazi stuff? I can answer that. <laughs> okay. It's... Yeah. I, I have my ideas about it based on what Oshi has said, but you go first. I mean, I'm going to basically repeat what Oshi said, and I'm not going to defend it in any way. It's... He and a bunch of the animators are military otaku, and in Japan, the um, Nazi imagery does not necessarily have the same... Um, Baggage, maybe it's not something that's discussed or spoken about in school as much as we go through, and so they have less of a a taboo in showing it. Mm. So, you know, really it's him having a really weird, uncomfortable hobby, and the animators too, and I know that he mentions in the commentary, it's like, oh yeah, I'm really into guns too, and I'm like, oh great, you're just not really, and you can teach grade schoolers, great, wonderful, I'm not really comfortable with this. Like like I always say, it's like, I love him as an artist, but as a person, Actually, you know what's funny? As I've also seen his other work that he he's the creator of Jinro, and the imagery of Jinro is the SS helmet of the soldiers within Jinro. So mm-hmm. this doesn't surprise me that he's a big military nut, and it's also him kind of reinforcing in that movie, without going into any spoilers, that um, the military is better or is the superior choice than to have an individual freedom. Uh, that he, which he kind of reiterates in general, um, so I'm I'm kind of not surprised that he's a military nut, and also it's probably just culturally is J- Japan didn't suffer any of the atrocities that uh, the Nazis did during World War II, like they just uh, committed some of them. They yes, they did commit right. They did commit uh, the same level of atrocities, especially in China, uh, but. They don't have yeah. that connection. They don't have that connection that uh, mm-hmm. the West does to 
the Holocaust. And I think yeah, also you gotta consider that it. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and the, the other thing is too is ever since um, the dissolvement of the Japanese military, there's always been a strong contingent of people in Japan who have wanted the military back, which is I think now finally uh, started to finally come back is before they just had a defense force and now they're starting to build their own military again but i could be wrong i mean i would say it's obviously not a good look here you know in 2019 but i mean it's very obviously just that dressing there's nothing about the movie that's embracing any right-wing politics uh, at all uh, no politics really at all uh, if we want to go there uh, uh they're obviously I've... not touching upon anything there so it's it's and when you consider the the historical aspect that again japan was allies with uh with with, with germany at the time uh, and yes J- japan has not been great as far as treating you know, other people uh, you know, with that same level of basic respect, it, there's a lot of historical, you know, precedents for that. But this scene is obviously just for side dressing. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah. as much as we focus on the SS cafe that you know, the the Yatsura gang is coming up with, I'm really more interested in the the whoever is doing the cafe or the student event that's based on the Planet X aliens from Invasion of Astro Monsters. <laughs> why, why can't we go? Ha- I want to hang out with them instead. If we yes. can, we just pan the camera over. <laughs> oh yes, I would much rather hang out with them too. <laughs> but yeah, like like you said, Tobias, it it is a lot of set dressing, but I, I think it's just one of those. Um, pieces that's emblematic of like and you see this in a lot of Japanese um, media it's just like this sort of it can be fairly innocuous but just in context it's difficult to process like this this fetishization of Nazi imagery that you see in anime pops up every now and again like you see it in in Helsing and stuff like that and I think this is just another example of that but like you said there's not really any like hard political Stance. ramifications. I mean, yeah, I think it's this. one thing in like Helsing, especially the like the OVAs and the original manga, where they're really showing you not just the Nazi imagery, but like like the soldiers. And I haven't really seen a whole lot of that. But from what I have seen mm-hmm. of Helsing, is that they really sort of they like you said they they do sort of fetishize that very fascist aesthetic. But here, yes. there's just I mean, they sure there's some swastikas. Sure, they're talking about that. But I mean, if you if you just took that out and replaced it with like U.S. military stuff here, like we have people that literally role play, you know, Civil War reenactments and World War mm-hmm. reenactments and stuff like that. So, I mean, not to say that what we've done is anywhere near as as awful as Nazi Germany, but we still do fetishize war here. And if yes. you consider that's really all it is, is like you said, a military otaku there. That's obviously the intent, attempt here. Um, yes. you, you, of course, you'll see that with uh, various otaku cultures will bring up Nazi imagery. You'll see people cosplay in those outfits. And again, in 2018, 2019, not such a great look. Maybe don't do mm-hmm. that now, especially with the political climate across the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a movie that came out 30 years ago. Like if someone right. were to dress up you know, in a you know, Nazi military cosplay 30 years ago, not again, not to defend that, not to say there's anything great with that whatsoever. That's still a shitty thing to do. Going to be upfront with that, but I think the intent is very important here, and it's just there right. to, uh, you know, that, that whole military fandom as I itself, think, rather than embracing. I think also just thinking of the set dressing in that cafe. If you took that image, if you took the Nazi imagery out, it could be like a 1920s, 1930s bar. 
just kind of mm. not not defending what they're doing, but I'm just. I think, like Tobias, like you're saying, is just the the fetishization of Nazi and fascism and imagery and uh, mm-hmm. set dressing. Yeah, I mean, I don't right. even think they're like. I don't even see any fetishist acts of here. Like, there's like you said in Jinro, like are some of his other works that are a little more political. Like that's really pushing this this oppressive of a fascist force. There's very obviously commentary in uh, Jinro, and even to some degree, maybe even Angel's Egg, uh, you know, mm. commentary on that. But and, I, this is it's straight up. It's just straight up addressing here. When you look at when you again, this is an Urusei Yasuro. <laughs> this yeah. is Ataru being a pervy dude. Lom just being like she's gonna shock Ataru there's like a tar uh, or shinobu is gonna pit somebody and be really violent like the, yeah that's I, I, yeah. I okay great maybe again maybe not a, like a great visual thing to see now but even seeing this the first time and sort of blinking for a second you're like oh that's that that's a swastika yeah. they're talking about the third reich cafe like after that initial like reaction it's just like uh yeah, I, I see what they're doing here. I will also yeah. say, it seems that uh, Magane is the one who spearheaded this. And when I know that, I'm like, oh, of course you were the one that came up with this idea. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and he's sort of played off to be somewhat buffoonish in general. I, he yeah. is the one character. Like, I have, like, a, a. I love all of the characters in Erisei Yatsu. Like, uh, like, I love uh, Mendo and Lum and Ataru and. Shinobu and Ray, who is not in this movie, but he's uh, Lum's ex-boyfriend who turns into a tiger cow, and he only knows like <laughs> the words "eat" and "gun," and I love him. But then Magane is like the one character I'm like, I really wish you just were not in this show or manga or anything because I just I hate you. <laughs> I think Magane's best scene is right after things go to hell and they're in that sort of Mad Max escape. He's just kind of like recounting the like, opening chapters of his book. It's like the prologue, <laughs> chapter three. We've realized, you know, the state of this world. And he's very philosophical, but it's just, it's very internal, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, uh, self-congratulatory yeah. uh, inner monologue. I thought it was pretty funny. Mendo has started driving around his tank to let off some steam or something. <laughs> yeah, or something. <laughs> I, I really like that scene in particular, because you see Mendo's tank as it crests like the hill right when yeah. their car goes under it and it's like that yes. is straight out of angel's egg that is literally a shot in angel's egg which That's is the thing i really enjoyed about this movie i mean if you, if you think oh she's a little pretentious like if ghost in the show is your limit angel's egg is way way above that limit you don't even want to bother with angel's egg this i think so you mentioned earlier <clears throat> this is very much a like if you want to do a light version of Angel's Egg, this would be the one to go with. There's a lot of comedy mm-hmm. to keep you away from that pretentious angle, but there's a lot of weird dreamlike states and, and really interesting, like frames framing for these scenes that remind me very much of watching Angel's Egg. I think Angel's mm-hmm. Egg is also mm-hmm. saved by the just absolutely gorgeous Yoshitaka Amano designs, and uh, also I think I was the one to introduce you to Angel's Egg, wasn't I? Um. No, but if you want to take credit for it, I wouldn't be mad. <laughs> okay, I will, because I like to feel special. But, yeah, like, to, <laughs> Go like Tobias it. said, it really is sort of a, a test run for Angel's Egg in a lot of ways, and as much as I think that movie is absolutely jaw-droppingly beautiful, I said, I've been saying beautiful a lot, it's very fitting for the title of this movie, um, I think that a- Beautiful Dreamer <laughs> is a better character piece in a lot of ways, because it does revolve around Lum and Ataru and 
Mindo and Sakura figuring out this sort of mystery and uh, I think the only uh, the only other way that the sort of third Reich imagery comes back is we do learn that the dream demon has apparently inspired Hitler and Judas and other you know bad people in history and he's not good at his job it's very much <laughs> like a loop in the third type premise of this MacGuffin was able to inspire wars that changed history forever He's he's kind of mm-hmm. like the mystical MacGuffin that you would see in a Lupin movie. Is he too in league with Paul Williams? <laughs> <laughs> oh, naturally. All roads uh, lead back to Paul Williams at Third Impact Anime Podcast. Typically, yeah. But I think the commentary there is sort of like a cheese theme: is that if the people in general are just terrible, even if you give them a uh, you know a perfect <laughs> dream state or inspire their dreams. They're gonna they're gonna always take it to the lowest level. Well, the, so I think it sort of leads it, into the third arc where where sure everything seems perfect, but everything's also just a, a torn up hellscape that they're all playing in. Uh, you know, we've got uh, uh, but, we have Mendo driving his tank around, but it's, so it's all it's always gonna go to hell. But isn't that kind of uh, human desires? Even if we have everything, there's always something more that we want. Well, yeah, I guess that's, that's I guess that's kind of what I'm saying is that even you know giving uh, is the implication was that you know, even giving Hitler this power, you know, giving Caesar this power and having his friend backstab him, like things are always going to go to hell just because that's the way humans are. Uh, we as we see it here, where the, the natural evolution of, the, of this world has gone from just centered around the school to being this really Mad Max torn up hellscape. That mm-hmm. sure, like the the really like you mentioned earlier, like the, the 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 dumber characters really enjoy, and Lum even is able to find enjoyment out of it. But uh, you know, both uh, both Sakura and Mendo realize that you know it's really mm-hmm. uh, it's really a prison. To be fair, a prison of their thoughts. So mm-hmm. they they've got to break free. I think that um, I think that just the the cost of your dreams is also something that is somewhat touched on there. Um, it's like, well, you know, Lum got what she wanted she got her wish you know to just you know be you know happily ever after with uh, Ataru and his friends and their parents and Ten and all of those people that she loves but it's like you know at what cost you know Um, and that's (laughs) something that I, I kind of wish that the movie had done a little bit better job of maybe Lum learning that lesson Um, but I guess I guess uh, Urusei Yatsura is kind of like Seinfeld, where like the 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 idea is not to learn the lesson; it's just to go through the antics and then have more antics next week. So uh, it's a unless show that's about obnoxious aliens, yeah, exactly. So it's like, is is Lum really ever going to learn a lesson? Is Ataru ever really going to learn a lesson? No, but they're still going to make mistakes, and we're going to laugh at them and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Well, I think they do learn a lesson. Like I said, I think they they learn more about their relationship. But I also think that when it comes to Mujaki, he's sort of a monkey's paw because Lum's wish is not, I want to be with Ataru forever in a ruinous nightmare world. She says, I will be with him forever as things are. Like, she wants it to be basically like the series forever. And he's the one that says, okay, so you want crumbling buildings and, like, 
puddles you can sink into, and you want your school to be a skit from Scooby-Doo, but without the groovy 70s music and no jinkies. <laughs> so, like, okay, I can do that. Like, it seems like he's just, like I said, really bad at his job. If he wanted to give one person a beautiful dream that could hurt no one and it lasts forever, he did not. <laughs> right. Um, speaking of, like, image, one last thing on imagery, kind of backpedaling a little bit, is one of the reveals that happens in the movie is that their city or their town is basically on a giant turtle. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to... I don't know where I know this from, but I know that's like a common theme like within science fiction. Like I know Terry Pratchett, the science fiction author for the Discworld series, has used like his worlds are on a, on a big turtle floating thing. And I'm, I, I don't know if you would know this, Tobias, but like where would that... Sort of well, they, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly thought of uh, of Terry Pratchett. You know, first of all, I think there's a quote about uh, sort of similar to that. But I mean, they, they mention uh, the the movie itself, the legend of Hiroshima Taro, a, a Japanese myth, where basically this guy uh, he saved a turtle, uh, hopped on uh, I think that turtle or its mother's back, and it took them down to the Dragon Palace and this undersea palace, and he had a lot of fun in the Dragon Palace for three days. Uh, decided, you know what? I miss my family. I miss I miss my village. I'm gonna go see how they're doing. So the turtle takes him back after three days back to the surface, and he finds out that a hundred years have passed. So uh, mm. it's very much a Rip Van Winkle scenario, which they also reference, I think, in the subtitle track here as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what that's a and a reference to here, very directly the Urashima Taro. Uh, you know, deal with there, where we see the turtle itself is ferrying uh, Tomibiki Town. Uh, through through space, that and the the turtle that the town is situated on, uh, and the statues of uh, Cherry, who is a character in the series, who is Sakura's uncle. He is this sort of uh, priest who first foretells Ataru's doom at the hands of Lum and uh, Onsen Mark. They're standing in place of the elephants. The world turtle is uh, a, a myth in uh, Hindu mythology that later was transferred over the Chinese mythology by way of them learning about Buddhism and etc. Um, that's what they're referencing, is the idea of the... Uh, in this idea of the world, there's the, the, the earth, or whatever, the world, uh, being held up by elephants who stand upon the back of a great turtle or tortoise. So that's what they're referencing. And that kind of goes way back around to Urashi Mataru. So. Hmm. It's turtles all the way down. Yep. <laughs> Alright guys, well unless there's anything else you guys want to bring up, I guess we can move into our Twitter questions, or our Facebook Let's questions, I guess. Let's talk about the dub for a second. The dub turned ten oh, sure. to a girl, and I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird choice. I guess it's because of the high-pitched voice, that would be my guess, but I don't know. Um, yeah, the dub was done by Central Park Media in 1997. Um, most of the series at that point had been released on uh, VHS and DVD by Animago. But um, CPM was able to get the rights to this um, through an agreement with Toho, uh, which is uh, which was the distributor of this film and is the only Urusei Yatsura thing that they've distributed. Um, that's why you see like Godzilla and a bunch of other references to Toho properties in the film. It's because it was kind of technically a Toho movie. Um, <laughs> and Toho was pretty, pretty lenient. They were just like, yeah, throw all our stuff in there. Go ham with it. Uh, so Oshi and the crew definitely did that. 
Um, but yeah, Central Park Media was able to grab it from Toho, and they put out a dub, and it's one of the very few things of, of Urusei Yatsura that actually got an English-language version. Ooh, 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 I have, some, I have some info about that. Okay, <laughs> go for it. So let's talk about the dub history of Urusei Yatsura, because it is a trip. So there was a there was an attempt by Animego, I believe it was Animego, at least had some hand in it to have it dubbed. They only dubbed like the first two or three episodes. It's not that great. I like the Lum, even though she does have kind of a stereotypical uh, voice, like sort of an Asian woman voice, I guess, and I don't like that, but I do like her voice actress's sort of take on it. There's that one. There's this dub by Central Park Media, where I do like the Lum here too, but I do find the Mendo to be kind of overacted, and I find the Ataru to be kind of overacted and it's 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 as me and Austin had said before we started recording it's good for the time but let's talk about the time the BBC was like let's get into anime and they dubbed it <laughs> and you got uh, you got everyone sounding like they're like they have like an East Enders thing going on <laughs> and Ataru has this like very thick Cockney accent and it and it, and like Lum sounds like Daphne from Frasier and we're going full circle again. It's like the worst hey, thing ever. And I have repetition, it in my, man. Repetition, God, we're gonna wake up and it's gonna be today again. Hello, Taru. I'm Princess Lum, your opponent. An alien babe. The very pleased to meet you, Princess Lum. My daughter takes after her mother. Now, if within ten days you can grab her horns in a game of tag, the earth is safe. <laughs> but to grab her horns, I'll have to grab that body first. Ataru! I will be very difficult to get hold of, you know. But I bet you're worth it. I'll catch you all right with these hands. <laughs> 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 We're going to do this podcast over and over and over. I mean, it felt like it is with the number of times we've had to restart. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's absolutely awful, and I cannot wait to put it in my panel that uh, I've also submitted along with the Japanese film panel. But there's also a supposed uh, lost media Cosma the Invader Girl dub that might have only aired in Alaska. And whether or not that's, like, someone trolling the lost media people, or if that's a real thing, is kind of up in the air. But I like to mention it because uh, it's a it's a fascinating part of the Yatsura canon, like the supposed Curse of Lum and other weird areas of it. And uh, as you had mentioned uh, with, the, with the, 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 uh, the collaboration with Toho in this, and they talked about having, you know, the, the, the Ultraman, the, the Baltan show up, as well as Godzilla. I think one of the newspapers mentions Gamera wanting to make a comeback. Uh, but there is the one scene where they're watching the original uh, Gojira uh, on, uh, you know, on the big screen. And that, that is notable. I'm sure anybody who's seen one of the old, uh, you know, older anime fans that have seen this long before already know this. But for those of you just jumping in, uh, they actually animated that scene from the Godzilla movie uh, from memory. Uh, at the time, video copies weren't really as, as readily available as they are, as we can imagine they would be now. So all of that was straight from memory. And if you go back and watch the source material and watch that, it's, I would say it's a really damn good job. Uh, as done from memory and uh, I, we kind of have talked about you know watching it on blu-ray and and the releases here but one of the major reasons we're talking about a beautiful dreamer is that discotheque did put this out about a year ago on blu-ray and completely remastered it it looks absolutely gorgeous for being a movie from 1980 84 85 
And uh, of course, a lot of this information is available on the liner notes they've included, which is about 10 or so pages they have on screen, which just recount a lot of the technical things that we've talked about, but it's certainly worth your time. Uh, we mentioned that interview with Oshi is also available on there as director's commentary from the original DVD release back in the early 2000s. So uh, if you're interested in this movie at all, I can not recommend the discotheque release enough. It is perfect. And, Absolutely. And the great thing yeah. about picking it up uh, is that with all that money flowing into, you know, Udisei Outsider Properties, that also encourages people to license, uh, relicense the series or these other movies. So if you go spend your hard-earned dollars on Beautiful Dreamer, that just increases the chances in some, you know, karmic way that we'll be getting really re-releases of the other material. Even though, of course, mm-hmm. that's they haven't actually acquired any of that. That is not me with any you know business acumen whatsoever. It's just that's the way of the world, and mm-hmm. you know that all that does sort of hold true because we are going to be getting some re-releases of the original manga here coming up very very shortly. Uh, Sully, I think that's the next month or so that the first volume is coming out. Yep, it's going to be coming out soon. I I don't think a, a hard release date has been given, or if it has, I haven't heard of it yet. But it, it I do know spring twenty nineteen is the release date, and it's going to be um, a large omnibus omnibus volumes. I'm really excited because that's going to look beautiful on my shelf. Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes me think of the uh, recent ish Devilman and uh, Captain Harlock uh, re releases that we've been seeing, mm-hmm. and yeah. I know they've announced volume two, so. We're at least going to get two volumes of, of the original manga, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I know a lot of people are familiar with, with Lum as a character, as the, the general you know, aesthetic, you know, anime aesthetic uh, character. But uh, like, like, like you sort of mentioned, the series itself, I think, still holds up very well. Uh, probably the, the one single example of Takahashi's entire catalog that holds up the best, I would say. Um, people go back through, and sure, the humor can be uh, a little pervy at times. Ataru can be a very annoying character, depending on uh, how you relate to him. But I still feel like a lot of that humor does hold up. Uh, a lot of the comedic timing does hold up. And like we mentioned earlier with Bill, I don't feel like... Uh, sure, in the original series, there is a lot of that, that Japanese-style comedy that doesn't really resonate well with us as Westerners. There's still some really good examples of comedy that does. Um, one cool. thing, too, is that Urusei Yatsura, like I said, came out in 78, the original manga, and it had its 40th anniversary last year, and there's a huge wave of merchandise that's been coming out. I know that, Austin, you brought me a Lum keychain from Japan when you had went, and um, yep. mm-hmm. I bought on my recent visit to Lost Ark a Lum Q-Posket figure, and normally I don't like that line of figures because I think they look... Um, how can I put this politely? Grotesque and horrifying. Um, <laughs> but the Lum one was so cute, I could not resist it. I had been wanting it ever since I saw it announced, and I bought the manga variation with the sort of pinkish-red multicolor hair, and when I took her out of the box the second time, when I was going to put her on my bookshelf, her neck snapped and she broke, and I'm having to send her to a friend who said he could repair her, and I hope and pray that he can fix her, because what will I do without my lum? Don't take my sunshine away. (laughs) You have to share this podcast with one friend so that lum will be healed. (laughs) You have to repost this on your timeline within 24 hours or the lums will never come back. No, don't tell True. me this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are you guys ready to move into questions? 
Yeah. Oh, how can we not or talk General about? Ra- oh yeah. How can we not talk about the best character in the entire movie, the pig? I love the pig. The pig is so great. You, you, uh, you mean the one that has the copyright symbol on his? On yeah, his body? Got, he's got the copyright symbol, and he, though the movie, he's just on like a, a set piece. But <laughs> at the end, I the, the part that still cracks me up is when Ataru says, "You know, all right, screw this. I'm blowing this horn." He blows it, <laughs> and the pig just looks up, and his eyes just shine, and with like <laughs> a fury of a thousand suns, he just like ingests the entire world around it. That scene is so hilarious <laughs> to me. I think that sums up uh, the movie as a whole. That one scene, just how ridiculous and surreal Beautiful Dreamer can be. That'll do, Absolutely. That'll do. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Very, very well said. (laughs) All right, so uh, as we try and continue to do, and I sometimes forget it, but I try not to. uh, So one question we like to ask at the very end of every time that we review something is, what do you, what is the most iconic scene of the film for you? So I will go to Bill first. So Bill, what is the most iconic scene from Beautiful Dreamer? My favorite or most memorable scene in the movie is the uh, scene I think where Sakura is talking to the the their one of the other staff member and he's going he, he's at their house and he's talking about deja vu and the camera starts spinning in in the circle and then fading into black. That's my favorite scene in the entire movie. What about you, Tobias? So you're in luck because I know the actual time codes of my favorite scene, so you can hey. check that out. Uh, my time favorite codes. scene. <laughs> my favorite scene is from the very beginning, you know, zero, 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 to minute 98. Every <laughs> single <laughs> minute of this movie is absolutely perfect. Uh, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, like the characterizations and whatnot here, but, you know, even if you're not really familiar with Yurisei Yatsu or these characters, like, I just think that, like, Oh, man, it's such a beautiful movie to watch, and rewatching it again, and again. Like I'm sorry, I already said this, but just to reiterate, just rewatching it again, I was so blown away with just every single scene. It's just so atmospheric, so great. Uh, a lot of those are broken up uh, with very, very funny Takahashi-esque comedy that just works. It breaks everything up and feels so, so great. Uh, I guess if I really got to pick one, I mean, I'm you thinking do. of three right now, off the top of my head. That's just kind of like. Wow. Uh, the one that still stands out to me is near the end when uh, Lum has the watermelon and she's cooling it off under the running water. And like Shutaro's mind just kind of like stops because <laughs> he realizes what has happened. And the water keeps flowing and it creates this perfect mirror on the ground. And uh, that's definitely going to go in my surrealism panel when I do it again because, mm-hmm. man, it's just a scene that just sort of stood out in my mind. And that's a perfect like cinematic shot like not just in anime mm-hmm. but like in cinema altogether i just love the way that scene looks mm-hmm. oh and another one because i've got to mention this well i'll mention it if no one else does so go ahead uh go ahead Sully. god it's it's hard to pick because I, I like different scenes for different reasons i think one scene that i think about whenever i think of this movie is that first car ride with mendo and ataru when he's watching the the closed shop windows go by and that's I think the first time I saw that was the first time I sort of knew this is not going to be just any movie because it's it's almost like they were driving out of the the normalcy 
or is normalcy very relative definition of it for Ursa Yatsu? It's like, no, we're not in, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in a very different scene and then, or different film. And then I think the scene where that makes me laugh, like a, a funny scene is when uh, Ataru winds back up in episode one, basically. It's like, no, I'm not doing this again. And that part always kills me because I, I love that they actually go back to that. And, um, the, the moment when they're walking down the street and he sinks into the puddle, that always gets to me. That's another one of those... It's not so much scenes for me as it is just moments. I could go and list moments. Like Bill said, the scene with Onsen, Mark, and Sakura. Uh, the, the, the way that that scene is shot and when they're on the motorbike. And um, that moment when Lum or uh, Ataru tells the dream demon, no, this isn't heaven unless Lum is here. And when we see the little girl with the white hat is Lum, like, I, I'm sorry, I could just go on forever. Like, um, <laughs> I love this movie. Like, if you had to make me list my top eight favorite anime movies, this would be probably at least number two. Yeah, no, I, I would say yeah, but the, the other one I was going to mention was the one where they're walking down the street. Just from the moment where we that scene starts and the music, the very dreamlike music kicks in. And then, like you said, uh, Ataru sinks into the ground. And then Shinobu gets lost in the back alleys and all that stuff starts happening. Like, man, I, ah, God, I love that scene so much. Well, I was going to say mine, but you just said it, Tobias, so thanks. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> It's Sully's fault. Sully mentioned it. I'm sorry. I just I love this. But it's movie. so perfect though. It like is. it really like let's be honest. Like that's the one scene I love to show in this realism panel. Like I show mm-hmm. the one with the car ride uh, to sort of get the people into it. But like that's the one that I think just stands out. It's just perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Just the way it's the, like the, the camera is framed. You know, at the very beginning where you don't see the characters, you see their reflection in the puddles. And they're very casually walking down the street, and like from there, like the Shinobu back alley scenes, and it ends like the music just kind of cuts off, and she looks up, and there's that guy. Uh, there's that guy standing, sort of watching her. Do we know who that is? Is that a character? So in uh, in the Oshi interview, he said it was supposed to be the audience. Oh, okay. Hmm. So yes, and it's kind of a very impressionistic scene. And supposedly yeah. Takahashi is caricatured in one of those shots at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I just like that scene is just, ah, oh, God, that is, I think that's the centerpiece of, of that. Between that and the entire uh, school at night scene, the, like you said, the Scooby Doo esque part, there are just so many great individual parts of that. From the Ataru uh, you know, infinite hallway scene uh, to like Lum doing the weird uh, like MC Escher, like flying in and out of the, mm-hmm. the windows. God, I love this movie. <laughs> Well, since you stole mine, I'm going to pick a silly one and say that the most iconic scene for me is the dream scene where Ataru is Frankenstein. I love it. And everyone else is like a villager. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. No love for the pig this time, Austin? Hey, we already talked about the pig. I like the pig plenty, but I just had to pick a silly one because Tobias stole mine. It's the copyright pig. That's his name. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) The pig of copyright. Exactly. All right, folks, so we do have a couple of uh, Twitter questions here to wrap them up. They're all from our beautiful and wonderful friend, Basil, from the Awesome Cast, uh, who always provides us with such incredible questions in which to discuss 
various anime topics that we are talking about. So here our first question from Basil is, what was your first exposure to Rumiko Takahashi? Uh, I'll answer this one for myself. Um, it was probably knowing about Inuyasha through just cultural osmosis, but I never got into it. That was never something I watched whenever I was younger. So really my first exposure to Rumiko Takahashi would be... Um, Gosh, maybe watching a couple episodes of Ranma One Half, maybe like four or five years ago, um, but never really getting super into it. Um, so yeah, my my exposure to her is not very uh, lengthy nor interesting. But uh, what about you, Bill? Uh, my connection with Takahashi probably would be most people like Inuyasha and its wonderful uh, weapon sound effect noises. <laughs> that, Viz, <laughs> that Viz put in, uh, I think. Uh, so <laughs> I just remember that and a, like a couple of the opening songs. Uh, <laughs> it made me realize now that more uh, sound effects should be added to uh, to fights, like whoosh, and all those <laughs> wonderful sound effects. I love them. Tobias. Yeah, so uh, my very first experience was, uh, uh, so my father taking me down to the, the local video store, which, I mean, video stores, we don't really have those anymore, hey. and uh, I went to the aisle where they were renting out Super Nintendo games, uh, which which pretty much dates me, but uh, looking through the, the various offerings, you know, they had for rent, and for whatever reason, this little, like, corner video game store in Birmingham, Alabama, had the Ronmo One Half fighting game. Uh, wow. in, in English, yeah. So I was like, "All right, well, this looks fun." Uh, I had at that point, I don't think I'd even really watched any Pokemon. Pokemon had not quite come out yet, so my experience with anything anime was very limited, if that. So I remember playing this this wacky fighting game and not having a a single idea what was going on. Uh, you've got these two characters, a a boy and a girl, which look very similar. You've got a panda character. You've got just a variety of you know the weird Ranma cast, but um, it might have been in Japanese because I don't remember understanding a single thing that was going on. It was just goofy as hell, which honestly like describes Ranma in half. Let's be fair. Uh, and right after then, I think for whatever reason, right when Pokemon had come out, uh, I was somehow getting uh, Viz's catalog, like a mailed version of the catalog sent sent to my home. Uh, and I noticed uh, that aside from Pokemon, they had all of the series, Ranma and Half, that I had barely remembered at the time. And they had like little synopses of every season uh, in the catalog. So sort of pouring myself, like learning what these characters that I vaguely remembered were, what they did, uh, their own little stories, which are all really weird, uh, was, was a, uh, so certainly something I can remember from my early, uh, early fandom. Uh, I've only really tried to go back and watch a few episodes of Ranma uh, as they're available, but uh, I, I would still say that that early impression, uh, very very naive impression, is uh, something that I think will live on in my you know fandom of the early '90s. Sully, um, so I never got into Inu Inu Inuyasha at all. Um, the like the most I knew about it is like I probably saw it on Adult Swim like when I was like a teenager or a little younger, I remember that I used to watch Astro Boy and Gigantor early in the morning on Monday because it came on 
on Adult Swim that early, and I think Inuyasha came on in the middle of the night like that, and I might have watched it, like, because there was nothing else, but not known a damn thing what was going on. Um, <laughs> I vaguely remember there was a crow woman at one point. Um, yeah. And I... And, like, the most I know about it is, like, the robot chicken joke about the dad who gets really into Inuyasha, which I imagine is going to be Austin one day. Um, <laughs> but but not about it, not about Inuyasha. No, about something else, probably. King of Kingdom but, Hearts. Um, probably yeah. Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> but um, I I really probably got into Takahashi through Urusei Yatsura because I didn't know who created Inuyasha until later, until I got into this, and uh, I've slowly very slowly been working my way through her sort of oeuvre, so uh, I've been watching Ursae Yatsura, obviously. I took a long break from it, just because I was into getting into other things, and I need to pick it back up, but uh, I've started watching Maison Coco a while back, too, and that's pretty good, so hopefully I'll get to Rama one half and um, some of her other works in a bit, because I've kind of fallen in love with her, her personal style. So Basil also asks, what was your first exposure to Mamoru Oshii? And for me, that would be watching the original Ghost in the Shell film probably around maybe 2012 or so. Um, I've kind of told this small story before, but uh, whenever I got my first job uh, working at Subway for just like, I don't know, seven hours a week or something like that for like no money at all. Uh, a lot of the money that I uh, did get from that I used to buy fairly cheap uh, anime movie DVDs on Amazon, and I was just going through, like, related product to related product, etc., etc., buying, like, Paprika, Memories, the Cowboy Bebop movie, stuff like that, um, and Ghost in the Shell was one of the ones that I picked up. Um, actually, come to think of it, I picked up Ghost in the Shell in this, like, DVD bundle that I got on eBay, very few of which I still have those discs for. Um, I've gotten rid of most of them because most of them are kind of awful. Uh, I do remember it came with the first volume of Serial Experiments Lane, so I have that still, too. Um, but I watched that original film probably around 2012, and I really, really enjoyed it, and uh, just sort of been slowly getting into uh, Oshii's work since then. Um, I watched uh, Ghost in the Shell Innocence for the first time last year. It's a really, really awesome movie. Um, yeah, I like Oshii, but he's a problematic fave, of course. All right, Bill, what about you? First, uh, first, um, first exposure to Oshi. Um, probably Ghost in the Shell, like you, but it was kind of a weird back way where I watched Standalone Complex first, wanted to watch more of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, and then went to go watch Ghost in the Shell, and then said, This isn't Standalone Complex, I don't like this. And then uh. coming back to it later and realizing, like, oh, wait, this movie's actually really good. <laughs> uh, for, so that was probably in, like, 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Tobias? I mean, if again, going back to sort of the 90s, if you were an anime fan at all, you, nobody would ever shut up about Ghost in the Shell. And I think that kind of initially maybe pushed me off uh, of watching it. I only really, I think I watched it uh, the first and only time, I want to say, in maybe 2013. And I'm ah. pretty sure I was intoxicated when I watched it, so I don't really remember a whole bunch. I'm still not really impressed with it as much as I feel there's like I should be. There's a robot lady. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of robots, and uh, uh, apparently one of them is Scarlett Johansson. But, uh, <laughs> apparently. She's in uh, everything now. 
Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I just I just don't think I get Oshi, I guess. Uh, I, I wasn't really impressed with Ghost in the Shell. I honestly should watch it again. Uh, it's completely sober uh, to give it a fair shake. Um, I think my very first interaction after hearing about Ghost in the Shell, uh, I did pick up a copy of Jinro, The Wolf Brigade, uh, way back, the anime movie there. And honestly, maybe it's just a different time in my life. Maybe I was just too young for it, but didn't really like it. Uh, wasn't really impressed by it at all. Uh, again, maybe I should give that another uh, chance now. But we we should do a we should do a podcast on that, Tobias. I want your take on Jinro. Let's, uh, let's do yeah, it. I I could I could, we could do an Oshii cast. I could go back and actually give these things a fair shake. But uh, up until now, the only thing I've really enjoyed of his, uh, I know that he had a big hand in the Pat Labor stuff, and I, I'm really a big fan of that. Although I honestly haven't seen the movies that he directed, so I I should change that. I know, I know. But uh, uh, I really also enjoyed Angel's Egg. Uh, I feel like a lot of uh, what people would call like pretentiousness to me can be ignored just by the visuals. I'm I very much enjoy visuals and 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 in movies and anime in particular. So a lot of Angel's Egg, I feel like I can enjoy just because of that and did enjoy it because of that. Uh, but uh, you know, the, a lot of the stuff that people think of when they talk about Oshi, I'm sorry, makes me a bad person. I guess I'm just not really as blown away by him as some people are. Hmm. Sully? So, Angel's Egg was probably my first real introduction, other than knowing his name and knowing why he directed, but my first movie of his that I watched was Angel's Egg, and it blew me away, and I think it's... I was going over the list in my head of, well, what are my favorite anime movies? And they're almost... All of them are like Satoshi Kon and Mamoru Oshii, so uh, my taste is uh, very specific. Um, but I love that movie, and it was one of the first things I saw of his. And I think the reason why I enjoy his stuff, even if I don't necessarily enjoy him, is um, I, I often critique him for being a pretentious auteur wannabe artist and I think the the great secret is I too am a pretentious auteur wannabe so <laughs> that's why I get him sadly um, it's kind of funny uh, he actually worked on one of the Time Boken series my pet favorite anime and uh, he was on Zenderman and actually the staff made a character who only appears called the Oshi alien who only appears to tell the villains that they failed like he only appears to say you've gone so close and yet you failed so much and I think that kind of speaks to what people think of him when they work with him because he is known for being such a sort of backbreaking you know commanding director and as much as I think he is hard to deal with and I find reading interviews with him to be grading sometimes I cannot deny that I love his artistic output so that's how I came across him and my exposure and what I think of him mm-hmm. uh, so I'll direct this last question to Sully because the last two questions we kind of already answered uh, but how much do you think this movie in particular is Tak- Takahashi versus Oishi Okay, so let's put it Excuse to you me. this way. Let me say that again, because I said oishi, and that is wrong. That means delicious. <laughs> How much of All this right. movie is delicious? <laughs> Alright, hold on. There's a lot of scenes so the, where there's, like, food everywhere. True. Uh, so the last two questions here we kind of already answered, but Sully, I'll direct this final question to you. How much do you think that this movie is Takahashi versus Oshi? Oh, it's almost entirely Oshi. Um, they, he discusses 
Takahashi meeting with the film crew or the, the production crew to like you know go over and like do you like this and she basically was just like oh yeah it's fine and then apparently they had a disagreement on something that he doesn't elaborate on but I'm I have some ideas of what that might have been um, but basically it is she basically said yeah you can use my character she kind of had the the Rikdo Koshi method of signing off on this movie I Rumiko Takahashi give uh, you permission to turn Urusei Yatsura into a pretentious art film stamp um, <laughs> <laughs> um, did she have to stamp it onto the butt of a pig <laughs> very possibly I'm sure Oshi would have brought the pig himself um, <laughs> so like it is entirely the only thing I can see of it that is Takahashi is it is her characters and it is they do try to capture some of the romantic comedy aspect in in small doses but i she had no hand in this movie and i do not think she's a fan of it uh because of its reputation in the fandom in japan it was not a hit in japan when it came out it really kind of gained a cult following here and then later there and uh, many people were sort of upset that it wasn't going to be Lum being silly and cute. It was going to be like a weird contemplation on the nature of reality. So, <laughs> All right. So I guess ending on that note, uh, that takes us to the end of our episode. So thank you guys for joining me. Really appreciate it. Um, I guess as general wrap-up stuff, um, Tobias, can you tell people where they can yell at you on the internet? Uh, you cannot yell at me on the internet because uh, my feelings get hurt really easily. But if you would like to give me compliments or uh, you know talk to me about anime, you can find me on Twitter at Reverend underscore Tobias. What about you, Bill? Where can people uh, whisper sweet nothings into your internet ear? Uh, you can talk to me about time codes and uh, One Piece, of course, wow. at WBForman999 on Twitter. Maybe you'll see my Straw Hat Pirate uh, tattoo I'll get someday. And where can people Urusei your Yatsura, Sully? Please do not do that. Um, <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at Kalvakun, that is C-A-L-V-A underscore K-U-N, and before I sign off, I just want to say, if you're really interested in Mamoru Oshii, I highly recommend the book Stray Dog of Anime by Brian Ra. Um and if you're really into Urusei Yatsura, I definitely recommend the website uh, Tomobikucho, which is a fan site, which uh, doesn't really update anymore, but it's just a treasure trove of information about the series, and I have used it to uh, find out things about the show for myself and to work on my panel. So, like, if like either of those things interest you, those are my sort of resources I recommend. Uh, please remind me, and I will put those in the show notes. You got it, boss. Alrighty. And as for me, you can find me over on Twitter at BebopShock. That's Bebop is in Cowboy Bebop, and Shock is in Bioshock. And, uh, yeah, you can come over there and talk to me about Kingdom Hearts, anime, what have you. Um, and make sure to follow our main page over at at TI underscore anime on Twitter. And please, uh, like we said earlier, please join our Facebook community. Uh, it's a great little group that we've got uh, building over there. And if you're already there, please add your friends. We are always excited to meet uh, new people in the Digiverse. Alright folks, this has been another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast and uh, we'll see you next time. Have Sweet a good night. Dreams. Have fun digivolving. That was, that was very ominous, Sully. <laughs> You're welcome. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.